We pray, Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Bless us, God, as we study your word this morning. Send your spirit to each one of us to strengthen and encourage us in our faith. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So good morning again, and welcome to the second sermon in our October sermon series, which is called Lost and Found. So last week, we talked about being lost, right? We talked about the feeling of being lost. We kind of traced the feelings that it starts out with being annoyed, and then, and then you get angry, and then, you, and then you start to panic and get scared is the final step. And then we talked through a whole rescue story from the perspective of the person who's lost and, and being rescued. Today, we're going to flip it, and we're going to talk about the feelings that come when you lose something. So how do you feel when you lose something? You're like, well, not good, right? Um, but let's think through some of these scenarios. Imagine that you lose your wallet or your keys, and now it's going to make you late for work. Or imagine that you lose your passport, and it's going to make you miss a trip, unless you find it. Or imagine that you go out your back door, and you're going to hop on your bike, and guess what? Your bike is gone. Or you go out the front door, you're going to get in your car, and guess what? Your car is gone. So what is the feeling when you've lost something, and particularly something valuable, and you don't know where it is? I think maybe it's the same set of feelings, kind of, as when you're actually lost. That the first thing when you lose something is you get annoyed. And then you start to get angry. And then you start to panic. And so what you're doing then is you're messing up your house. You're pulling up drawers and you're dumping them out and you're digging through things and there's now toys everywhere and you're in your closet and there's clothes and shoes flying across the room and you're, you're freaking out because you've got to find this valuable item and then you find it. Turns out your passport had just fallen to the bottom of the filing cabinet. Or it turns out that your car had not been stolen your kids just wanted to ride bikes in the driveway, and so your wife had moved it to the road. But now, depending on the value of the object, you might feel tremendously relieved now that the thing that you had lost has finally been found. So this feeling of losing something, frantically searching for it, and then finding it, it's so relatable to the human experience that Jesus uses this feeling in two different parables to help us understand some things today about the heart of God. But before we jump into our text, let's take a minute to set the stage. Our text comes from Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is doing what he normally does, which is he's choosing to spend his time with the evildoers and the criminals and the morally corrupt people of his society. Meanwhile, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are doing what they normally do, which is getting angry at Jesus for spending so much time with the bad people. This is an ongoing dynamic between Jesus and the Pharisees, and they're always grumbling and thinking, what kind of a prophet does Jesus think that he is? If he's truly the Son of God, he would probably be surrounding himself with some more godly people. So, but in the background, here's the problem that was going, up, going on in the background. At Jesus' time, the Jewish religion was all about morality, and it was all about good behavior. But that good behavior was not done to glorify God. 
And that good behavior was not done to serve other people. It was done to serve yourself. See, the Jewish leaders had many, many religious laws, and these laws were viewed as an opportunity to distinguish yourself above other people and to kind of prove to everybody else by following every one of these laws that you were one of the good ones. So this group called the Pharisees were widely viewed to be some of the best ones. Not only did they keep God's Old Testament laws, or they thought they did, but they also kept hundreds and hundreds of bonus laws that they had created, which governed every aspect of behavior that you could imagine. Everything from how much you gave to church, to how many steps you took on the Sabbath day, to the specific length of the tassels on your garments. And so in like the hierarchy of holiness in the Jewish world, everybody thought that clearly the Pharisees must have been at the top or near the top. And yet Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, had little desire to hang out with the Pharisees. Instead, he intentionally focused on hanging out with people who were living obviously sinful and immoral lifestyles. He intentionally spent time with people who were clearly very far from God. As we get into our text today, Jesus is going to explain to us why he did this. So, we begin. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and and eats with them. I'll add one more detail about that word, sinners. Um, This was a specific word referring to a specific group of people in Jesus' time. So, you guys know this. Jesus hung out with the poor and lowly, and the sick and suffering, and the marginalized and oppressed. Right? Jesus would go specifically spend times with those groups of people. The sinners was not that group of people. Um, The sinners were actually the ones who were marginalizing and oppressing everybody else. And the textbook example of someone in this group that they called sinners would be the tax collector. So who were the tax collectors? These were people who had betrayed their fellow Jewish people to work for the Romans. They had systematically cheated their own families out of large sums of money But in the process, they had become fabulously wealthy. So tax collectors were people who lived the kind of lifestyle that demonstrated they didn't care if they were doing what was right or wrong, and they didn't care what anybody thought about them. What they cared about was themselves. So everyone just knew this, that this was a fact, that someone like a tax collector was basically a scumbag, just pure and simple. So this is the sinner's. It's not the poor oppressed, it's the oppressors. And yet, not only did Jesus welcome these groups of people, but he even ate with them. And eating with people still today has a cultural significance in the Eastern world that I think in the West we don't really understand. Like, you don't eat with just anybody. Breaking bread with somebody is an intimate display of friendship and connection and love. And Jesus was willing to to do this with people who were basically the most hated criminals in his society. Why would Jesus do this? Well, let's let Jesus answer that question himself. It says, Jesus told them this parable. 
Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Can you raise your hand if you've heard this parable before? Can you put your hands down? Thank you. Uh, I feel like this is a pretty famous parable. It's a pretty well-known one. But sometimes the way that this parable is interpreted, at least in Christian rock songs, at least the way that I hear them, it sounds as though the shepherd in this story is doing something really special. He's going above and beyond for that sheep just like God goes above and beyond for us. It's kind of like, can you imagine this? He's got 99 sheep. That's that's plenty of sheep. And he's got them safe and secure, and any other shepherd would be fine. 99 is enough, but not this guy. He, He defies conventional wisdom. He leaves the 99, and he goes and gets the one. But he leaves the 99. Like, can you believe this? Who would do something like this? But the way Jesus tells this, his point is, well, everybody would do this. This is what every single person would do, assuming that what they've lost is something of significant value. Sheep aren't cheap. Uh, Even in today's world, a sheep is a couple hundred dollars. It could be even a thousand dollars, I've learned, if it's a really prize-winning, healthy sheep. So this is a significant financial investment. And in Jesus' parable, it's 1% of the financial portfolio of this shepherd. I don't know your finances. What's 1% of your entire portfolio? If you lost it, would you notice? If you had the opportunity to go get it back, would you try? I mean, I think so. So when you've lost something of significant value, of course you leave other things behind and you go hunt it down. And you could think of when you lose something important, the frustration, and the anxiety, and the panicked searching that is there, and then the incredible relief when you do find it. That's how God feels when one more lost person is brought to repentance and faith in him. And so, even though this is a common parable, I don't know if we always understand it, the surprising part about this parable is not that the shepherd would leave the 99 valuable sheep to go get one more valuable sheep. That's not the surprising part. The surprising part is the fact that God would consider any of us his valuable sheep to begin with. And we know this because of the sermon text that we talked through last week. Last week, our sermon text described the natural state of human beings. And we'll just say, it's not a pretty picture. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So by nature... By virtue of our sinful nature and our sinful state, 
we are not just lost to God, but we are actively opposing him. We are fighting against him. In fact, we are fleeing from him in the opposite direction, wanting to do things our own way, wanting to be our own God. So we, by nature, are headed away from God. And yet, instead of viewing us as a lost cause and letting us go, or instead of viewing us as his enemies and pouring out on us the wrath that we would rightfully deserve, instead, how does God view sinful human beings? He feels the same anguish and frustration and and panicked feeling at our lostness as a shepherd would feel who had lost one of his valuable sheep. And then God feels the same overwhelming joy and relief when we are finally found. So there's your answer to the question of why did Jesus welcome sinners and eat with them? It's because he so desperately longed to lead them to repentance and bring them back into the fold. Making sense so far? So the second parable, Jesus basically says the exact same thing, just in a slightly different way. Now he says it like this. Suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Once again, this is a familiar parable, but I'm not sure if we fully understand it. We might be tempted to think that this woman is kind of overreacting and being dramatic. Like, who would ever throw a party for all of their neighbors because they lost a single coin? Well, coins aren't that valuable in our currency, but they were in theirs. And besides that, we're missing some of the details of the story. This woman is clearly living in poverty. She's living in basically a hut because it's got a dirt floor. And we know it's not much of a hut because it's dark. And when she searches for the coins, she has to light a lamp. So that means there's probably no windows. This woman is living in some financial need. And when she loses a silver coin, which in the Greek currency, it was a drachma, the drachma coin was worth several hundred dollars in today's terms. So if you are in some real financial need, if you are on a tight, tight monthly budget and you lose something worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars, that lost coin could represent not having money to buy groceries the last week of the month. It could represent not being able to pay her light bill. It could represent not being able to make her rent. And so she's panicked. She's terrified. She's probably crying. Where could it have gone? Did somebody steal it? I don't know, but I have to find it. And so she lights a lamp and she crawls on her hands and knees in every corner of the house. She's sweeping away the dirt on the dirt floor until finally, praise the Lord, she finds it. And she can buy groceries. She can keep the lights on. She sits back and she probably sobs with tears of relief. And she invites her neighbors who were so worried about her to come celebrate with her. The financial crisis has been averted. The lost coin has been found. Could you and I have ever guessed 
that the passion and intensity of this poor woman searching for this valuable coin, could you and I have ever guessed that that is the same passion and intensity with which our God searches for us? Because the fact is, a lot of days, you and I don't feel that valuable. Really, when we talked about socks, we don't feel like we're that great of a sock. Uh, But if we reach the end of a day and we're done with the day of justifying ourselves and pretending like we're better than most people and highlighting other people's big sins so we don't have to think about our little sins and, and then we lie in our beds waiting to fall asleep and we think honestly about the evil that crept into our life and that really came out of our heart again today. And when we think of the selfishness with which we treated the people that God has put in our life again today, When we think of all the ways we've wandered from God, little ways and big ways throughout our lifetime, and we've done it again today, do we really feel like God's treasured possession? Do we really feel like God would crawl through the darkness for us, frantically searching every inch of his house, getting dirt under his fingernails, getting spider webs in his face, scattering his possessions everywhere because he is so desperate to find us down in the corner where we are hiding? Do we really think that God would do whatever it takes to find us? Because we're that valuable to him. Well, he would. In fact, He already did. As Jesus explains a few chapters later in Luke, the reason the Son of Man came was to seek and to save the lost. So brothers and sisters in Christ, the fact is God does value you so highly. And God is so upset by the way that our sin has distanced us from him that before you were even born, God sent his own Son into this world to find you, to face the same temptations that you're going to face, to face the same troubles that you're going to face, and to do it perfectly. And then to go to the cross and take God's punishment that you deserve for all of your sins, to take that and put it on himself, to suffer the lostness of hell in your place so that you could be found in the joys of heaven for all eternity. But the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The whole reason Jesus came into this world is because he was desperately, frantically concerned to find you. And then, when you came into the world, God rejoiced that now the time had come. And so what did God do? He surrounded you with people who were going to tell you and show you about his love for you. And he fed you with his word. And he poured out his grace on you in baptism. And he claimed you as his child. And in doing that, he pulled you from lostness to foundness, from darkness to light, from death to life. And there was great rejoicing in heaven because one more lost sheep, so valuable to God, had now been found. This is your story. This is all of our story. So now what? How do the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin apply to our daily life? We're going to close our sermon this morning with two applications. The first application is for when we wander. 
So there are times in all of our lives when our sinful nature still gets the best of us and we start again to stray away from God and his commands. And we can wander in different ways, right? We could do it like the tax collectors where we just squeeze our eyes tightly shut, we cover our ears, and we dive into sin, just totally ignoring the consequences, totally ignoring the fact that we know this is wrong. We say, I can do what I want, God, I'm tuning you out right now, leave me alone. So we could wander from God by boldly jumping into sin. We could also wander from God like the Pharisees and like the teachers of the law, where we spend all of our time judging other people for their bad behavior and elevating ourselves above them as though somehow the fact that our sin didn't show up in the public way that theirs did, as though that somehow makes us better than them, like we don't have sin either. We can wander from God in either direction, but when we wander, either way, God refuses to let us go. He sends us his word. He sends us our fellow Christians. He sends us his Holy Spirit to break our hearts, and convict us of our sin and send us back in repentance to the cross of Jesus where we are reminded that that sin too has been forgiven. That sin too has been covered in Jesus' precious blood. And when we repent, when we're brought to repentance, the angels in heaven rejoice that one more sinner, again, has been found, brought to repentance. The second application is for when we look at our world. And it's quite simply this. When we look at our world, God wants us to view every single human being, no matter who they are, with the same incredible value that he does. And when we look at our world, God wants us to work frantically to connect people with him, no matter who they are. Just as frantically as that poor woman is clawing through the dirt of her house trying to find that lost coin. God wants people to be so valuable to us that we would do whatever it takes to connect somebody with the love of Jesus so they can be in heaven. And finally, God wants us to rejoice as gladly as the angels in heaven when any person, no matter who they are, is brought to repentance and faith and being part of God's family. And so may God grant us hearts of compassion to value others as we have been valued and to love others as we have been loved. May God grant that to each one of us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.